Thanks, Brad. Um, we are in a series, and we're, we're trying to address the very issues that come through in that, right? That we live in a world where the, the problems of the world, they, they weigh on us. And, and here we are, and we have an answer. And the question for us is, how do we get that answer out? How do we let the world know that they're not left with hopelessness, with just desperation, because their situation seems like there's no solution? And it's really what we're doing over these 90 days. This series, this series, there, oh, no, this series. <clears throat> this series, Adventum. We're, we're traveling, we're on a journey, we're, we're seeking to find ways to, to plug in, to, to, to get the power of God moving through us so the world doesn't have to continue to sing those songs, that we can sing a new song. And so we, um, we began with our hearts and, and asked, like, what does it mean to prepare our hearts and have our hearts ready? And then we moved on to our witness or our mouths, and what does it mean to have our witness ready? And we've been looking at um, last week, this week, and we'll, we'll do this again next week in one more way. What does it mean to have a community that's ready for the call of God, a community that's ready to move into our world? And so I'm going to, there was obviously a, uh, a, a look ahead there, but there's certain things, okay, to, to start with this, there's certain things that just go together, right? Okay? There's certain things. It's not moving again. I don't want to hit it. Matt, is it? There we go. There's certain things that just go together, right? Like they belong together. And um, the, the chocolatey, peanut buttery goodness of the Reese's Cup is one of those things, right? Like it just... It just fits. It goes together. There are certain combinations that when you put them together, it's just difficult to not laugh. They don't even have to say anything. Just seeing them together makes us laugh. There's certain combinations that cause us to just celebrate, right? Okay? Yeah, which one for the Heisman? I don't know. They were ready to give it to both of them yesterday. Okay? But there's certain things that just get us... They, they, they come together, they're meant to be together, and we celebrate them to being together. But there's some combinations that are powerful. They're, we would say, like, they're explosive even. Um, I am not a scientist. I married one, okay? She's brilliant and, and, and lovely, and, and, and she's way out of my league, okay? But, but one of the things I've learned from her over the years is how, like, how close to, to dangerous we live all the time. Okay, did you know that in table salt, there's sodium, right? And, and sodium with, what is it? Cal, uh, not calcium, sodium chloride, right? Together, perfectly great. Like we put in our food, it's tasty, it's lovely. But sodium alone, okay, is explosive, okay? Sodium metal, if, you've, if you were in chemistry class and had a fun teacher like my wife, and I, I actually wanted to do this and checked into it. I can't. It's not allowed, okay? But, 
But if you take sodium metal and just put it in water, it explodes. I mean, it just, it's, it's dangerous. It's like blow your arm off dangerous if the piece is big enough. And it's really cool because it, it falls and it, it blows off into pieces. And the little pieces of the sodium metal, if the original piece is big enough, they fracture off into more pieces. And those pieces in the water, they explode and it creates this chain reaction. It's the coolest thing. Okay? It really is cool. There are certain combinations that are explosive. And what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about two things, okay? Two things that the New Testament tells us that, that they, are, they are independently of one another. They are powerful and good. But we believe here at Life Community, we believe that when you put those two things together, you get an explosive combination, okay? You get an explosive combination. And the first one is, is, uh, it's, it's the, it's a, this is the Greek word. It's the word koinonia. We talk about koinonia around here all the time. We do it in many ways because one translation of koinonia is, is the word community, and it's our middle name, that we believe in it so much, this idea that, that comes out of the, the New Testament scriptures. We believe in it so much that we've sort of named ourselves around this idea. Koinonia. Koinonia, it, it, it's sort of a weird word. It, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't appear a lot in literature outside the New Testament. It kind of seems like it might be primarily like a Christian word that the, the earliest Christians maybe made up or used. Um, and so it's, but it, but it's, it's all over the New Testament. It's hardly, it's not hardly, it's never in, in the like, Greek translation of the Old Testament. So when, when they translated the, the Old Testament from, from Hebrew into Greek, they, they never used this word in it. It appears that this word shows up sometime be, before, between the finishing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Okay? And it's a word that they use to describe the, the deep sense of relational belonging that they had with one another. Okay? We say koinonia is community or fellowship. Okay? That's way, the way we typically translate it, but it's a little more complicated than that. It became the word to, to describe the dynamic that they, were, that they said they were experiencing in the early church. Last week, we, we looked at Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when it says they, they were devoted to certain things, it says they were devoted to the fellowship. It says that, that what it's saying is that they were devoted to koinonia. It was one of, the, one of the things that the early church was dedicated to or devoted to. It's from the root word koine, which is the word common, okay, common in Greek, which so this, it's sort of a way of, of putting a superlative on common. It's, like, it's, it's sort of a way of saying it's, it's, it's commonness or commonality or, or community, but taken to an extreme that we don't experience in any sort of regular way. The second word we're going to talk about here is agape. Agape is, you may see this one around. There's companies named after it in different churches, but agape, we most common, we translate it as love. We most commonly translate it as love, but it's, it's a little more than what we tend to think about with love. As we associate feeling a certain way with love, agape has feelings associated with it, but it, it goes beyond those things. It's a supernatural love or a higher love. And when koinonia and agape are put together, we just believe something to be true. When you take the dynamic of community and you put it together with a real, earnest love. We believe that that combination is explosive. It's powerful. We believe that it changes everything. 
We believe that if you get close to it, it might like blow your face off, okay? We just believe that. And, and we believe it because the scriptures talk about these things in ways that are, are, it's difficult for us to deny the power of it. And so what I'd like to do this morning is take our time, and I want to look at each ingredient. I want to look at koinonia. I want to look at agape. And what happens in each of these? How do we understand each one? How is it that, that these two things define what we mean by the word church? And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to tell you up front that, that, that in the midst of this, or at the, towards the end of this, I'm, I'm going to ask you to get in this. Get yourself close to the explosive combination, because it's the place where transformation emerges, where change occurs. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in several different passages, and I'll put them on the screen, but if, I would encourage you to look for yourself. The first one we're going to go to is 1 John. 1 John, almost to the near, nearly to the end of your, of your Bible. 1 John, and then we'll, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians as well, but 1 John is the, the first place we're going to look. 1 John. This is a letter that, that John, the apostle, who de- described himself as the, the one whom Jesus loved, who was someone who felt this agape love from Christ. In, in 1 John, he's writing a letter, and it's, it seems to be a letter that, to try and convince to try and convince the, the, the recipient of, of, some, of, of a few realities, okay? But, but first and foremost among those realities is the importance of this idea of koinonia, okay? So right in chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, and I'm going to read from uh, the, the first, I'm going to read verse 3, okay? Start there. 1 John chapter 1 verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So pause there for a sec. He says, we're writing about that which we have seen, we being John, being an apostle of Jesus Christ. We've seen her, and now they're proclaiming these things to us. So we're writing about what we've experienced and witnessed. And then look what he says, so that you too may have fellowship, that's koinonia, with us. That you can have this dynamic with us But he uses it again in the next phrase, and indeed our koinonia, our fellowship, is with the Father and with his son Jesus. Here's what he's saying, right? He takes these two things, and he says, we can have fellowship, koinonia, deep connection with one another, and that deep connection is the same as our connection with with God the Father, God the Son. You catch this? That the relationships we experience... These relationships are inherently spiritual. They're just like the relationship we can have with God. We find our meaning in them in the same way. Keep reading, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship or koinonia with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Five times in these verses, he uses this word fellowship or koinonia. And he says there's a dynamic. There's a relationship that's at work. It begins with our relationship with God. We we have the possibility to have a tight relationship with God. We have that that possibility. But, But it's not just something that just happens to us. Do you see what he says? If we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. If there's, 
There's a way of life that produces this, that promotes it. It's not just simply a magic wand that gets waved over us, and it's suddenly, bang, there it is. There's, there's, some, there's more to it. And so the first thing we find about koinonia is this. To understand the word, we have to understand that koinonia is a partnership. It's a partnership. Koinonia, it's not, it's not just a, a, like a, a passive um, spectator-oriented thing. It's a partnership. It's not just like what we said last week. It's not just about consuming what the church is providing, but koinonia is about a relational investment where, where people together walk in the light, move towards God with one another. They're partnered together. But there's more to koinonia than that. It makes demands on us. It makes demands. Let's look at a few, a few more of these things. And, and keep, you can hang on to your Bible there. I'm going to go through a few other passages. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, uh, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? This is a strange idea, okay? And those of you who may know this passage, you know this is actually about marriage, Okay? It's about marriage. And in fact, where it says there, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, where it says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? That word partnership is actually the Greek word for intercourse, for sex. In our translations, we've, we've sort of made it a little more PG. But what Paul writes, and he says, what, what intercourse do righteousness and lawlessness have with one another? How can those two things procreate? How can they come together in an intimacy and be one with one another? They can't. And then he says, notice it's a different author, but he's using the same language that we just saw in in John's letter, or what fellowship, what koinonia, has light with darkness. You see, the, the next thing, and again, this is an odd idea. This is an odd idea. But the next thing we find out about koinonia is, is the deep level of intimacy that's understood in this idea. This is not just a, a passing, hey, how are you? Koinonia goes beneath the surface into places of deep intimacy, and it's, it's put side by side with those ideas in ways that, that have expectations of relational intimacy for us. You could say, like, Koinonia, the, sort of, the sorts of relationships that are, that are defined by, by the Christianity that the followers of Jesus in the first century are sharing with us, it sort of bears it all, right? We would say that the marriage bed is, is the most intimate place that we, we go with another person. And yet here, Paul writes and says, it's just like that in the church, the two things can be put side by side and compared similarly because the intimacy of the relationship is, is so similar. But there's even a little more. And, it, and this is, it gets a little harder for us to get at. And, and in fact, it gets harder for us to get at it in the way that it's translated. But, but keep looking with me at some other places. This is from Romans chapter 15, towards the very end of the book of Romans. It says, for, uh, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now, that's a way out of context, right? But, but in, at the end of the book of Romans, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he's asking them actually to give some money. And I believe that's 1516, if you've got your Bible. I'm sorry. That's a typo. But, but it's, there's a, he's, he's asking for a contribution to be made. 
And he says from these places, Macedonia, Achaia, they've, they've made some contribution. And here's the strange thing. That word contribution, I've italicized it there because that word contribution is the word koinonia. They've made a koinonia for the poor. That's, it's a little strange, but keep looking with me so we can get our heads around this better. In, in 2 Corinthians, another spot where Paul writes, he says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay? Check this out. Those, the word part there, this idea of taking part, it's the word koinonia. And again, he's talking about a gift. He's saying a gift has been made. There are those in need, and we have... They're, they're, we have, we've, we've done everything we can, and he sort of says, and then some have gone beyond what they really can. They've gone beyond what's reasonable to help meet that need. And there's, there's a, we're, we're begging you earnestly to koinonia in the relief of the saints, to partner in this. One more. In Hebrews, the very end of Hebrews, it says, do not neglect to do good and to share, that's the word koinonia there, koinonia, what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Again, with, with a little bit more time, we, we could camp on this further. But, but here at the end of Hebrews, actually, the author of Hebrews is saying something about the sacrifice that Christ made for us. That Christ, who had everything and was guilty of nothing, saw fit to, to give to us all that he had, to share what he had. And then the author of Hebrews turns it around and says this, you, just like Christ, ought to share in the same way. This is what, this is what we ought to be doing. And then that word share there is the koinonia word, that, that we ought to koinonia what we have. It's, very, it's used very differently from in some of these other places, but it helps us to understand it a little bit better. It helps us to understand that, that yes, it's talking about this idea of, of, of partnering, not just slipping in and out, but really partnering with other people. It's talking about intimacy, not withholding ourselves from others, but actually sharing our life with others. And it's also talking, though, about our contribution to community. That to koinonia is to contribute, to share, to have a part in it. Not to consume or just to take. And we would Stop and say, what, when we look at these things, what does church cost us? What does being a part of community, at what cost does it come to us? Because to understand it rightly, to, get, to catch it in its fullness, is to understand that, that, that to koinonia, to really be in fellowship, to, is, to, is to contribute, not just, not just to spectate and, and come in and out, not just to keep everything at arm's reach. Not just to sort of like token, give tokens of, of our, our time and energy and resources. But to, to contribute. This is, this is what the, the element of koinonia really means. And there's one more idea that takes this a little bit further. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, I speak as to sensible people, people that have their senses about them. Judge for yourselves what I say, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of, of Christ? These, this is the word koinonia, is talking about the communion cup. 
right? When we, when we share the bread and cup of, commun- of communion, aren't we like participating? Aren't we, aren't we taking an active participation? One more Philippians chapter 3. He writes, Paul writes, I, that I'm, he says that these, in, this, in, a, in a section, he says that I may know him. I'm doing all this so that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share, there's a koinonia, may koinonia his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There's a move in koinonia, and it's a move towards active participation. Okay? All the things that we've been saying about this, everything is, is sort of leads up to this idea. It's, 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 you see, it's where... We, we share because it's where needs are met. We koinonia, we come together and participate because it's, it's the design that God had for his people was that we were in an interconnected web of partnering intimacy, contributing participation, that it's, it's normative, it's natural in that environment for us to, to be meeting one another's needs. I, we... This happens. We see this all the time, right? What happens when we remove ourselves from it? What happens when we pull back from koinonia, from, from the partnering, intimate, contributing participation in the body of believers? One of the saddest things, and if, if, we, if you've been around Christian community for any period of time. One of the saddest things is, is when people have removed themselves from koinonia and then experience need, right? And no one knows. No one has any idea that the need exists. And the pain that we feel, some of the pain even that, that was in the song is this notion of, I'm on my own, there's no one is, is here to help me. And there's a dynamic that's missing. The dynamic is the interconnectedness of koinonia. It's what takes place or what happens when we move towards one another for the purpose of having fellowship with Christ, but we, we move towards one another in real, authentic, intimate ways where contributing to the needs of others becomes natural and we're just participating in it. So koinonia is ingredient number one. What happens when koinonia is in place? Let's take a look at the second idea. This is agape. It looks like agape, but it's agape, okay? Agape. And again, agape is one of the words that we today translate as love. There are some others, okay? There's, there's the word eros, which we think of as like, like erotic or romantic love. There's phileo, which is the word that we would translate as sort of like affection. Like I, I just, I really, we would maybe, probably wouldn't translate phileo today as love. We would translate it as like, I really, really like them, okay? Like they're easy to be with. I'm, I'm drawn to them, okay? But, it's, but in a non-sexual, non-romantic sort of way, that's phileo. And then there's this word agape, okay? This word agape. And we're going to do the same exercise, but we're going to do it a little bit differently. If you have your Bible here, if you go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this is, this is one of those chapters that, that if you probably see all over the place, you probably see quotes from it that may not even be cited as 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because we read this one at weddings all the time, okay? 
We read this one at weddings. Some of you probably had this read at your wedding. It was great. That's, that's awesome, okay? Um, we see it, you know, on the new things like paintings, right? The, the stencil paintings that we put up in our kitchens, and, you know, we see quotes from this all over the place. We see a lot of people who would have nothing to do with, with God will quote sections of this because everybody likes love, okay? And so we look, well, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to do this here because here's the fascinating thing about 1 Corinthians 13. It's, it's fully appropriate for weddings, although when Paul wrote it, he wasn't, I don't think he was imagining that, but the inspiration of the Spirit can do more than the author's imagination, right? But 1 Corinthians 13, obviously, it's between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are all about the community of believers in the church of Corinth and the problems and the troubles they were experiencing when they came together. It's all about the koinonia that was going on or not going on in the church in Corinth. And he's, he writes about, about these problems they were experiencing, and then he writes about the gifts that God gives and the gifts that God gives in order to, to meet those needs and, and, and address those problems. And then kind of sandwiched between those passages is this section about love. So let's take a look at this. Let's take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Okay? So Paul's writing, and the word, the word love there is our word agape. Okay? Agape. So he, he goes through these two things, and look at what he says. He starts with, with sort of expressions of religious spirituality. He says, if, if, I ha- if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, this practice of, of spiritual utterings that, that are in languages that are unknown to the speaker for, for the movement of the gospel or the glory of God or his praise, he says, if I do that, but I don't have love, I'm just making noise. So like, the power of the Spirit can be moving through me, and yet if it's without love, it's just noise. If I have prophetic powers, if I'm able to, to look around me and to analyze a problem and to speak against it in the name of God, and I understand mysteries, I can explain things that you don't understand on your own. I have knowledge. I have so much faith that I can move mountains. But if I don't have love, if I don't have agape, I've got nothing. This is significant. He even goes on, because remember, we just talked about con- contribution, our contribution to the community. He goes on to say this, if I give away everything I have, if I, if I give up my life, I deliver my life as a martyr, but I, have, I don't do it out of love. I don't do it because I love. He says, I've gained nothing. You see, koinonia can be, can be mimicked. People in God's, I would say in God's common grace, he's built us in such a way that we can experience community. We can experience religious power. We can experience the good of it without the ingredient of love. 
We can make it happen as a matter of will. I can force myself to to participate in certain activities. And Paul says here, that's okay. And God may use it. But it's not really the thing. It's not really the thing. You see, to start this passage, Paul says this about agape. He said, agape is the point. Okay? It's not about building churches. Churches are, are incredible. Churches are where the, the power of koinonia and agape flow through, but it's not about that. It's not about how many people we can get to say Jesus is king. He is, and I hope more and more people will acknowledge it and say it. But, but as, a, as a vehicle for saying it, as a person, it, 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 it's irrelevant if I don't love, if I don't agape my neighbor. So love is the point. Keep reading. And this is the section, I think, where we start to see a lot of the common quotations. Verse 4. He writes, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sounds like a great sermon series sometime, okay? But there's a, there's a point here, right? You've got sort of three things. Here's what love is. It's patient, it's kind. Here's what it's not. It doesn't envy, boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. So we see this this string of things that love isn't. Agape agape is these things. It's not these other things. And then it's this, this is what it does. It rejoices. It bears all things. It believes. It hopes. It endures. You catch this? To sum it up this way, here's here's what Paul's saying. He's saying agape, it's selfless. Can we take take all of that stuff that's there on those lists and, and boil it down to this? Agape... The ingredient we're talking about that becomes the power of God connected to koinonia, agape, love, it's selfless. It it doesn't, first and foremost, and in fact, it, it doesn't at any point in the conversation really get at, here's what I'm after, here's what I want. When we distill it all down, we need to ask this question. What are we hoping to get from all this? You see, I think this is a, a potent question for us to ask. Because for many of us, we approach koinonia or community or church with an eye towards, what is this going to do for me? What am I going to get in this? But if you take a look at what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 13, where's the getting in the description of agape? You see, we're... Our, Our orientation is off. We need a recalibration. Because the description that's here says, no, 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 no. It's it's not about you. It's about being patient towards the other. It's, It's about not being arrogant, not being irritable with others. It's about suffering long with them and carrying their needs. There's nowhere in here where it says, this is about me. And so when I get in my selfish head and I start to say things like, I'm just not really getting anything from this. What's in this for me? 
I shouldn't expect that that line of thinking is going to lead me towards the heart of God and agape love. That's not where he's pointed. It's not where he's aimed. It's not what agape love is about. Agape love, is a, it, it's a shame on us to think that way. And I'm going to say this. It's a shame on churches if we give you the impression that that is what it's about. It's not. We don't do this because we're going to get so much. Oh, we will get. There is great promise of reward in the scriptures. But we don't love so that will be loved. We love because first we are loved. Because Christ sacrificed for us. And when we experience his love, we become a channel for it out to others. That's the calibration. That's the focus point. So agape, it is the point. It's what it's all about. It is selfless. Take a look at verse 8. And then he says this, Love never ends. As for prophecies already mentioned, they will pass away. They have an ending point. As for tongues, they will cease. The, the utterances that come clear from God won't go on forever. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the, the perfect comes, when, when, when all is said and done, when it's all complete, the partial, all these other things are going to pass away. Here's the thing about agape. In all the stuff we do, Every sermon I'm going to teach, every, every time that we sacrifice, they're temporary. Except for the element in them that's love. It's eternal. You see, the, the good works that I can do, they pass away. Same for yours. But the love that's in them, that's what's eternal. You see, agape becomes the essential element because it's the only thing that lasts when everything else is spent when everything else is gone, when, when all the other stuff goes away, it's only love that's left. And finally, he writes this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then and we will see face to face. Now I know only a part, but then when I'm with him, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It says this, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. You catch this? You see, there was a time where, like, I, I was a child, and when I was a child, I was kind of expected to act like a child, to say things that were childish. But over time, childish things are put away. So the last thing we would say is this, that, that what we're learning about agape is that it is maturity. That's why this, this section here at the end of this passage on love, it is maturity. Christian maturity isn't measured by our ability to, to get eyeballs on us. It's not measured by how much attention we can gain as a body. It's not measured by who shows up and who doesn't. It's not measured by how many good works I do. It's not measured by the hours that I put in serving. That's not maturity. All of those things can happen. I'm still a child. If I don't love, if all of those things are done for any sort of other reason, most likely selfish ambition, right? 
through the acts of a child. But we need to put away childish things. You see, the child is self-focused. What do I get out of this? The child is impatient. I want what I want, and I want it right now. The child doesn't have the ability to think eternally. They can't even think past the next moment. These are marks of maturity. And so when we just live in the moment with no thought of eternity, when we just live as if we're the center of the universe, absorbed by our own concerns and desires, it's the opposite of agape. We can make it look like it's religious, it's spiritual, but it's not sacrificial love. And when we put sacrificial love together with committed, intimate, contributing community, the results are explosive. The results are explosive. And I'm going to ask you today, wherever you are with this, if you've, if you've been engaged, thank God. But there's, there's always a bit more, right? This is the thing about Jesus. He doesn't stop with, yeah, that's good enough. He draws us in. Take another step. Say yes to another need. If you're involved, take that next step. If you've been engaged, you have participated, and somewhere along the way you caught yourself saying, it just wasn't working for me. Or it, it met my needs for a while, but then it just didn't anymore. I'm going to challenge you, because I think the Scriptures challenge us, to recalibrate. You see, if I put myself at the center, I'm always going to wind up disappointed. There is no church, there is no institution, there is nothing that's going to satisfy our selfishness. It's a bottomless pit. But when we orient towards meeting the needs of others, we're renewed. We can experience it. I'm going to challenge you to recalibrate, re-engage, get back involved. For those of you who've never tried it, Beware. <laughs> Beware. Because the dynamic of community and love together is explosive. If we'll submit to it, we'll see the work of God transforming us and shaping us. I'm only half kidding when I say it'll blow your face off. It will change us in ways where we won't be recognizable with what we were before. Would you pray with me? Father, we're... We're thankful, even though, um, even though the work that you do is often frightening, but we're thankful that you've seen fit, you've seen fit to give us the Spirit, and Spirit, we thank you that, that you've drawn us to this place, that you prompt us, that you've, you've given us the perfect word from the scriptures to understand that there's another gift there. There's a gift of community 
God, would you, um, would you help us? Would you, would you strengthen us where our faith is weak? Would you push us where our, our, we just don't have the will to step back in? And God, would you show us more and more of who you are and what you do? Allow us to experience your goodness. And we thank you again for a, a, a place and a people to do this with. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.